Amen. All right. Well, as we go this morning, the, the slide is Empowered Wisdom. Just to note that, uh, this, if you look at the contents of this, it lines up quite, quite neatly with uh, be empowered, uh, being led by the Spirit. And it, it would be, seem odd that wisdom and being led, of the, led by the Spirit would be separate, right? It wouldn't be separate because the Spirit, whenever He leads us, it's wise. And anything that's godly wisdom is led by the Spirit. So if you note at some point like, oh, this sounds a little bit like the sermon on being led by the Spirit, it's because in some ways it's exactly the same thing. Uh, and yet this morning we're just looking at pursuing wisdom itself as a thing. How do we as people kind of uh, um, orientate ourselves towards getting God's wisdom into our lives? And, and, and clearly walking with the Holy Spirit is one of the best ways you can do that. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit and you won't be out of step with God's wisdom, right? Secondly, just totally off topic, um, I'm, uh, Joel has a girlfriend here this morning <laughs> named Aileen, and it's nice to have you. My name is Mark. It's nice to meet you from this distance. Um, welcome. Sorry for embarrassing you. Uh, and this is the message I'd like you to pass back to Simon Murphy, pastor at RHC Church in Singapore. If things progress with yourself and Joel, we are totally open-handed and will send him to your side, if needs be, with faith and joy. This is the message I'd like you not to pass on to Pastor Simon Murphy, that you are welcome here and we hope you stay. <laughs> um, but welcome. Won't you welcome Eileen? We've all on to... So I'm sorry for that embarrassment, but it really is genuinely wonderful to have you here with us this morning. And um, Joel, you're wearing a mask. I hope you're blushing. I can't tell, but um, I'm going to keep going until you are. <laughs> um, Joel is a dear, dear, dear brother. I was talking about you somewhere this week, Joel, and, and someone was reading my face rather than listening to my words, and they kind of paused me, and they're like, what is it about this guy? Like, your face is lighting up. And I was like, I don't know. He's just, he's just a wonderful brother. He's been a real blessing from God. Um, so nice to, uh, yeah, just see where you're at at the moment. All right, let's jump back into the text. There comes a time in all of our lives where we bump into the need for wisdom. It's disappointing. We wish that we didn't have to get wisdom in our lives, but now and then, all of us have a need for wisdom. Uh, where the, and the point I'm trying to say there is like, not like daily wisdom, common wisdom, ordinary wisdom, just the wisdom of like your routine and, and that, but also just like unique wisdom, special wisdom. You have to make a decision, but you don't know what decision to make. Things are out of your control. Should you go this way? Should you go that way? Should you marry this person? Shouldn't you marry this person? Should you go live here? Should you go live there? Should you take this job? Shouldn't you take this? This kind of, you need some extraordinary wisdom that you don't have. And we, we, we realize, oh boy, my will isn't big enough for everything I need in my life. I hope you realize that. If you think your will is big enough, you, you, you uh, are borderline uh, being foolish. But we need God's wisdom in our lives. Proverbs um, 3 verse 7 says this, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Uh, he goes further. He says, Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope uh, for a fool than for them. There's not a lot of hope for a fool. But there's more hope for a fool than someone who thinks they have all the answers for the things going on in their life. Um, he goes on, uh, Isaiah goes a little bit more directly. He says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. A woe in the Old Testament is as bad as it gets. Woe is like separation from all the goodness of God. Woe to you 
who are wise in your own eyes. In other words, it's, not, it's worse than foolishness. It, it, it's, it's, the worst thing that can happen is you can be outside of God's will. That is a woe. And so the, what Isaiah and the writer of Proverbs is showing us is, hey, everyone, just be a little bit humble and realize we're, you're all going to need some other wisdom in your life. You're going to need some outside help, right? And so this morning, um, I'm just going to look through the passage a little bit because it's really, really wonderful. And then by the end of it, I want to give you an, a kind of a, something I made, so it may not be wise, um, that you can kind of test the goodness of the wisdom that you're thinking about, you know, and let's see if it works. So before we get there, think about something in your life right now that's, you know, a decision you either need to make or some, some decision you may need to make, um, and it's like real, real to you. You can really kind of think it through and, and play with it in your mind. So, so think about something that might be very real to you, so that later on when we use the test, you can kind of run that through the matrix and see what comes out on the other side. All right, so I'm going to give you a couple of seconds just to think of a real situation in your life that may come up that's beyond you. All right, great. That's long enough to tell them any longer and you're starting to give each other counsel. Um, all right, so we all need wisdom at some points in our life. We don't have it all, so what do we do? So let, let me give you some questions. When there's conflict in the church, what do we do? When there's changes in the church, Caleb said, there were a few things Caleb said that uh, were concerning to me. One, he said, you know, like when you're stuck in your church, it's just nice to have like other churches. It's like, whoa, sorry, is anyone stuck in King's Cross? You, you, unless God has stuck you here, you shouldn't, you, you're, not, you're not stuck here, I don't think. Um, the, there was something else. Oh, it's so nice to have like outside people help our church have vision and direction. Um, just, to, just to clarify, your vision and direction come from your elders, not outside people. Um, though we do bounce it off of them. But I just want to be clear, if you don't like it, don't go blaming uh, Simon and Ranjit for the uh, vision and direction of King's Cross. Um, so, but there are changes in the church because we're, we're learning and we're growing and we're walking with Jesus. What do we do when that happens? When there's different cultures and practices in our church, when we've valued something but there's a shift, God, we feel like God's leading us somewhere, what do we do when there's a shift? Uh, when we minister to a different culture that's not like ours. When we minister, um, when we face an ethical dilemma, what, what do we do? When we want to evangelize in a contextual way, how do we do this? How do we get wisdom so that we do that well as a church? What about making personal choices? What about your career? Ranjit tells this wonderful story. Um, and sorry, for those of you who are visiting, uh, Caleb is, is like one of my best friends in the whole world. So any mickey I've taken out of him, is hopefully on the bridge of friendship. Um, I would trust him with my own life. And I don't think there's a person in this room who loves this church any more than Caleb. So whatever jokes have gone his way, uh, visitors, I hope he is safe. Um, although he may be stuck. <laughs> um, okay, so Ranjit tells this wonderful story about one of his leaders in his church who's a designer of cars. I think he preached it here, so I don't think it's a private story. And he had this job, was offered in America, that he would be earning four times what he was earning in India just to design cars, which is like his passion and love. But he felt that God had called him to Delhi and to reach the people of Delhi. So he forfeited that job and a four times increase on his wage 
to stay where he felt God called him to. Obviously, naturally, that's not wise for very many reasons, but that could be the God wisdom for his life where God had called him to. So, and sorry, let me also say, it's not to suggest that any promotion is never God. It's just to say, are we getting God's wisdom, prophetically speaking, into our lives for the moment that we're in? Your career, do you have God's wisdom? What about where you live? What about your budget? What about your investments? What about your giving? What about your relationships, your friendships, uh, your discipleship, your romantic pursuits? What about your parenting? What about uh, your, your lifestyle? How about your schedule, your time, your priorities, your values? Have, have, are you getting wisdom on those things? Are you checking them? Or are you just doing your thing, living your best life? If that's too confronting, it will calm down, so don't worry about it. But we're going to need wisdom. That's the point. We, we don't have what, all we need. We need outside help to uh, walk in all that God has for us. We need wisdom. Wisdom, you can go read Tim, Tim Keller's little book on wisdom. It's a devotional, so you read it slowly over the year. But wisdom is a lot of things. It's, it's having discernment. It's having understanding. It's having insight. It's having experience. So when you look for wisdom, you're, having, you're asking God for all those things to come into your life, for discernment to come into your life, for understanding to come into your life, for experience to come into your life, for insight to come into your life. Um, and so as the, the writer of Proverbs says, wisdom is found in the counsel of many, um, many wise people, not many fools. So the people in this text need wisdom because, and we're just going to walk through it because it's the most amazing story, which we, we read the letter part today, but we didn't read what happened to, to why they're writing a letter. And what had happened was that there was this church um, that Paul and Barnabas were ministering into, and as they were ministering and preaching the gospel and discipling the church, some uh, of the, the Judean brothers, so some brothers connected to Peter and James and all of them, uh, or connected to that branch of the church, came through into this church and started to teach that uh, the, the Christians here, the Gentile Christians, also needed to add to their faith circumcision. And they said, unless you are circumcised like Moses, in other words, they don't want to spiritualize it and go, we don't, they're saying, we don't care if you're baptized in water or not, unless you're circumcised like Moses, in other words, unless you have had your foreskin cut off, you cannot be saved. That's what God gave to us. That's what you have to do. And Paul and Barnabas, it says they had no small dispute or no small dissension. Uh, I love it when the Bible... And, you know, it goes down in order to show the grandness of something. There was no small debate. <laughs> they, were, they were talking in big words for long times with lots of passion. They were angry about this. Paul and Barnabas were mad. And they're going back and forth in front of the people. And they say, you can't teach it. This is why. This is the theology of grace. This is what God said to Abraham. This is how faith came into being. And it was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Uh, that's, he's, he believed God. That was counted as righteous. It wasn't through the law that uh, salvation came. And then they dispute back and they're going forth until eventually the church is listening to this and they're going, we don't know what to believe. And Paul and Barnabas showed this extraordinary humility. This great apostle who has worked his tail off with his friends to see churches planted, to see people discipled, to protect the gospel, to clarify the gospel. Uh, he, his life has, he's, you know, in prison, he's been in prisons and all sorts of things. 
He has some sort of authority to be able to declare something. Can you imagine? I don't know. If someone came into the church, if someone came into this church, King's Cross, uh, and, and started teaching a doctrine contrary to the gospel, and afterwards, you know, this is, this is how I think I would lead the elders to respond. Uh, King's Cross, that's absolute, utter nonsense. Just ignore it. Thank you very much. Let's move on. Why? Because that doesn't cost me very much. Paul and Barnabas, though, they, they're incredibly humble in their response. And they say, okay, what we'll do is we'll go back, we'll go to Jerusalem. So we'll leave our home. We'll leave this community. And we'll go take our time and, and our effort. And we'll go over to them, to, to where these guys have come from and said this message, this is the message that arrives from the source. We'll go to the source and we'll sit down with the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem and the church there, and we'll, we'll figure out what the truth is about the gospel. And so, humbly, they pack up, they go over to Jerusalem, and there it says that they're sitting down, and they talk about it for a long time. You go read the text. It's this, this, this incredible sense of there's patience in the room. There's sincerity in the room. There's integrity in the room. There's opening up the scriptures in the room. It doesn't say they pray about it, but they, you can imagine that this leaks over between 9 and 12. So they, there's at least twice that there's an opportunity to pray. And if it goes over days, there's at least three to five times a day to pray about these things. You can imagine there's a few prayer meetings that they've had at least personally. And discussions happen around this. And as they're starting to figure it out, someone says in the room, one of them gets up and says, no, I think the Judeans are right about circumcision. And the whole thing implodes. Like just as they were getting consensus, someone in the room goes, no, I think those guys were right. So what do you do? Take a vote? Be democratic about it. Well, let's just raise our hands. Who thinks that they're wrong? Who thinks they're right? Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, everyone else raises their hand and goes, nope, we think the gospel is this. And this other guy raises his hands and and he goes, no, I'm with the legalistic unicorns. Let's, let's do that. Okay, well, it's 11 to 1, you're out. Let's move on. That would work in our society. That would work in boards. That would work democratically. But they don't. They keep on discussing it. They keep on working it out. There's a real integrity about the way they're working this through. They, they're nutting it out. They're using their minds. They're loving God with all of their hearts and their minds. Wisdom doesn't just come through praying, praying and fasting. It doesn't just come by sitting in your bedroom and saying, God, just make the way open for me. Sometimes you have to sit down and do some hard work and think things through and talk things out and wait on it and say, God, show us what you're saying. And uh, is this in your word? Does this line up with your scriptures? And then after a while, Peter gets up and he says one of the most extraordinary things, I think, in the whole book of Acts. Where's my Bible? Uh, is, it, is, it, is my Bible in the, in the box? Yeah. That is. Nice. Thanks, love. Look at what Peter says. He's listened and he's spoken and he's talked. Verse 10. He says, Why are we putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. 
But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. What he's saying here is gospel theology that we want to know, gospel centrality, which we try to get to every single week as we look at the texts on Sundays. We want to be gospel-centered in our theology. How does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus lead us to a response here? But from gospel theology, you can't stay there. There's got to be gospel cultures. There's got to be an overflow of a life that's centered on the gospel. There's got to be a transformed heart. There's got to be different ways of thinking. There's got to be changes of tone. I remember as God started to, and He is continually working on my heart, but I remember once when God uh, showed me how ungracious I was as, as the gospel started to work upon my heart. And I went to my wife and I said, I don't know if you realize, but I think I'm pretty ungracious. And she went, oh yeah, I've known, but I just pray, I've prayed for you for the last two years. And it was wonderful. Do you, did you see what she was doing there? Not only did she have a theology of the grace of God that came out of the gospel, God is gracious to us. He saved us while we were yet sinners. We find out how bad we are at the same time that we find out that He wants to rescue us. She also modeled it to me. So she, a culture overflowed from her. She didn't come to me with such a great revelation and say, Mark, you don't line up to the man that God calls you to according to the Scriptures. Uh, for example, the Bible calls you to lovingly sacrifice for me just as Christ did the church, and you in your ungracious and harshness are not lovingly sacrificing your will and opinions or your words and tones. And I would have no argument. She would be right. But it wouldn't be gracious. It would be an appeal for me to be gracious, but in a harsh way. What she did by praying for me for two years was model to me the grace she was hoping I would see in Christ. And something has happened to Peter that has transformed his heart. So as he thinks about the situation, his concern is about not just explaining the theology of the gospel, but not putting on them any burden, tone, weight, stress, anxiety, worry, concern, that's more than they can bear. It's not just what can we teach them theologically, it's what is going to be their experience of salvation. And he says to them, let's not put a burden around their necks that our fathers, nor we, have been able to bear. Think about it, what does this mean, Mark? Think about it in your homes. You might, if you have, a, if you have children, and, and uh, yeah, just singles, you can follow the, with this concept because you've been someone's child. So it's universally understood that perhaps you as a parent or your parent struggled with something in their life, had some failure or, or something. They might then put on you a sort of a burden of like, I don't want the same thing to happen to you. Right? Uh, so when I was a kid, I had lots of lollies and now I've got no teeth and I'm struggling with these issues and that. So you can have no lollies. You're just going to have vegetables and uh, kale chips, and you're going to love that. You should be so grateful to me. Don't raise weird children. <laughs> but we're imposing on them something we couldn't bear, but we put it onto them. It's too harsh. It's too much. But we're trying to get them to do something we couldn't do. And it, and it would be a good thing. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be, you know, we want you to obey the Lord. It would be a good thing to obey the law of God. Let's put it on them. Maybe they'll get it right. Peter goes, no rubbish. Don't put anything on them that we couldn't bear ourselves. Don't ask them to do anything that we couldn't do ourselves. 
Did you hear Abraham Cho in his talk at Kazuna on, on whatever, uh, Thursday for Wednesday night? He said this wonderful phrase. It was a gospel culture phrase. He said, before you go teach this or talk about this to anyone else, make sure you're getting it right in your own life. That's a gospel culture. Don't get a good idea and run around telling everyone else about how they should do it. You do it. And if it bears fruit in your life, spread it around. And if it doesn't, go, whew, I'm glad I didn't burden everyone else with that. That's a gospel culture. And Peter here demonstrates an incredible gospel culture by saying, let's not put onto them anything that our fathers and we couldn't do. Oh, don't you want to be in a church where your leaders, where your elders, don't require anything of you that they can't get right in their own lives? Isn't that what you want? Don't you want to be in a family where your parents don't require of you what they can't get right in their own lives? We haven't learned to trust God. We keep stressing about our finances and our budget, but you better learn how to trust God. Don't you want to be in friendships that assume the best of you, that don't put on you that you have to be the ultimate friend that they can't be? Do 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 you get the lightness of it? Don't you want to be around people that keep putting onto you the grace of God, what you can bear? Let's move on. I'm just too excited about this one point. And then after Peter talks, Paul and Barnabas say some more things. And then uh, uh, James talks and then James quotes Simeon. uh, and, and 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 then he quotes the prophets. So there's like all these voices coming in. They're looking for wisdom. And there's all these voices coming in. Uh, They're bringing in the scriptures, they're bringing in the guy who's not there, they're bringing in James, they're bringing in Peter, they're bringing in Paul and Barnabas. Uh, When they send the letter, it says the apostles and the elders and the whole church sends the letter. I mean, just everyone is involved. James says, you know, I've listened and it seems right. Don't you like those personality types? The quiet ones? But you can't wait for when they'll eventually open their mouths. Because you know when they eventually open their mouths, you'll all just sit there and go, I wish I didn't say what I said earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I'm more the Peter type that just gets started talking. Uh, Simon from RHC is one of those types in in our resound meetings. He's usually the last to speak and then he speaks and you go, yeah, I wish I didn't say that. (laughs) So much wisdom and clarity comes. Anna's laughing because maybe her and I are Peters. <laughs> Come on, Anna, tell us what you're thinking. <laughs> so so uh, James says, uh, uh, he says, he has a bunch of things I think we should, um, we, should, we should require. He says, I think if you partook in these things, it would probably be unhelpful. Um, and so he says, I'm trying to find out where, uh, he goes, I think, that I think you need to avoid things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, animals that are strangled, and from drinking blood. Four, four things, James says. I think, you know, let's keep the law off of their backs, but I think these are, these are things that in the grace of God they can do. Um, and this is really important because these four things revolved around four outcomes. The one is that in every one of the four things, God would be honored if they did it. In doing it or avoiding it, God would be honored. Number two, their their witness would remain. 
In other words, if they did these things, they would lose their witness. People wouldn't be able to see the light that they bear. Thirdly, their brothers and sisters would get confused or offended. So the Jewish Christians would look at how the Gentile Christians are living, and it would really hurt their faith. It would really cause them to struggle with God and wrestle. And so James says you can avoid this. There's some unnecessary offenses. And then fourthly, and this is maybe the surprising one of all of them, is that it was actually good for their health. <laughs> Food offered to idols was in the, at the time was full of terrible bacteria, and people would get horribly sick. And James goes, I think you can avoid the, those sickness. There's certain sicknesses that you can avoid. <laughs> you don't have to have those animals that are strangled so that the blood remains in the body and gets drunken during ritualistic worship. You can avoid that. It's not good for you. Um, you can avoid sexual immorality, sleeping with prostitutes of temple, temple gods. It's not good for you. you can ev- uh, these are all common uh, sexually, uh, sexual immorality of the day. You can avoid homosexuality where an older man mentors a younger man and they have a sexual relationship as well. You, you can avoid that. You can live pure sexual lives. Husband, wife. You can do that. I think they can do that. It's good for you. It's good for your Jewish brothers and sisters. It's good for your neighbors. They'll, they'll get a sense that your life is different. There's something you're on about. And it honors God. I think you can do that. I don't think that's too much. And you think about it. What in your life would change? For the, what, what in their life would change if they didn't do those things? Absolutely nothing. Well, sorry. I mean, things would change, but there would be no burden on them. They'd be, they would be, let's work it backwards. They would be mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually healthier, personally. Their relationships with other Christians, including their spouses, families, parents, children, neighbors, other church members, would be better. Their witness to their neighborhoods and workplaces would be stronger and clearer. And their lives would be incidentally honoring to God. They wouldn't have to think, how can I worship God today? They would be worshiping by the, the acts of their, the, the behavior of their life. Well, that's a gracious way to live a gospel-centered life. So that's what James decides, and they all agree. And so they decide together with the church to write a letter. Communication is so powerful here. They don't just send Paul and Barnabas back, but they send a letter back, and they kind of say, here's a letter for you to take back. You can keep the letter. We hope you send Silas and and the others back to us because we'd like to hear how you're going, but you can have them all. You can have Silas and the letter. They're here to explain things to you until you get it, and then please keep the letter and send the brothers back um, because we'd love to hear how it goes. But they're concerned to communicate, not only make a decision, but work it across into the culture of the church. And then you go read the letter that Adam read to us. It's such a short letter. Some of you laughed at the end of it. Because half the letter is like really concerned. We're so concerned to write to you. We're so sorry for these people that have come to you from us. We have not told them to say the things they told you. We did not send them. Please know that. It doesn't represent us. We're so sorry for the disruption that is caused to you. And that's half the letter. Then the other half, they go, hey, we, we, we're delighted that God has saved you. We think you should avoid these four things. Uh, if you do that, you'll do well. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> Farewell. That's it. They didn't even like, exposit them. 
Well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, they did, they did exposit them through human form. You know, you got the letter now, you can talk to the guys that we're sending to explain those things. Very simple. But they want to make sure that the, the, the church rests in them. They, the, it says the Gentiles rejoice. Why do they rejoice? Do you think they're rejoicing because they don't have to get circumcised? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, yes from two ladies. I'm not so sure. All the guys, all the guys are still about it. I, you know what? I don't think it's that big a deal. I think if I'm in that church and I'm convinced by the Judeans that if I do that, that will seal my salvation, no big deal. If that's it, no problem. I mean, trusting God is a lot harder than just going for a small operation. Trusting in God's grace is sometimes is more difficult than just a work of the law in terms of trusting in salvation. I'd rather trust in my own works than have to trust in the finished work of God because I can control my own works. I can't control Him. So I don't, I don't know that that's why they're rejoicing. It doesn't seem like that big a deal to me. Was it the lifting of the burden of the law off of them? Yeah, probably to some degree. But I think it was the, the tone of grace that washed through the letter and the message and the tone and the words that was brought back to them that caused rejoicing. I think it was the gospel on display and re-embodied and re-communicated to them that reminded them of the greatness of the grace of God that got lost in the confusion between legalism and grace. And the refreshing of that was like washing their hearts. Have you ever come back to the gospel and felt like you got saved again? That's the kind of rejoicing I think that's happening. And so I think it's the this, this sense of all the restrictions have been removed off of you and you have dignity. We, and this is, what, this is what they're saying. And this is, I think, what they're feeling. We are equals, you and us. In the eyes of God, we are equals. And that is settled. We are all under grace. Whoa. And you are His witnesses. You're not only saved by Him, but your lives matter and you are His witnesses. Wow, that has dignity. You are His children. You are His family. You are, call, you are called to glorify God. Your life matters. Your decisions matter. Your daily living matters. What you eat and drink matters. Wow. You matter. We care about you. God cares about you. He's not just saving you and moving on. You matter. I think rejoicing abounds. They get it. They're part of God's big move on the earth. And they're participators in it. Okay, so let me move through. through let, me, let me move towards an end and just show you five things that you need for wisdom. And the last one is a test that you can use. Real quickly, number one is you need humility. That's what we see here. We see here. You need open hands and open hearts. You need to have a humble disposition. You need to be willing, and I know I'm saying need on purpose. Uh, you need, like Paul and Barnabas, they disrupted their lives, they left their home, they went to others, they opened up their message, and they said, all right, let's weigh this on the scales. Where are we at? Are you humble? Are you humble enough to take your great plans? You've thought about it. You're the expert of your life. Psychologists tell us over and over and over you are the champion. Are you willing to take that to people who around you, who God's put around you and say, here's what's going on. Can you please speak into it? What do you think? Are you, are you humble enough for that? Number two, and if you feel uncomfortable about that like I might, then number two is important. You need to trust God and others. 
Paul and Barnabas and the apostles and the elders and the whole church got involved there. Now, we don't, let me just say, um, representing, as the elders representing the church, I just want to say the whole church is not interested in working out all of your decisions for you. Can we settle that? But you do need to be working out some of your decisions with others. And on occasion, the church will have a whole decision that we need to work out together. When we decided to move from Perth Modern to here, it was a whole church decision. Remember, we came to a meeting, a special meeting afterwards. We said, we've been here three or four weeks. We've been offered the place full time. What do you think? Let's think about that, pray about that, make a decision in a little while to come. And we, we raised our hands and we said what we think. We took a vote and we decided to stay. We decided to stay. Sometimes it's a decision that we all get involved in. But don't be nervous. We don't all want to be involved in everything about your life. But you do need to have other people involved in most things about your life. Who are you involving in your decisions? God will give you people. He's promised to give you wisdom. Wisdom comes through others. So who is it? Number three, patience. You need to have patience. We need to be willing to move at the pace that God allows. Some of us want to move too quickly. Some of us are too passive. We like, we'll go when God says go. My father-in-law has a wonderful phrase. He says, do until God says don't. I think that's right. The kingdom of God is generally a forward-moving kingdom. It's not a stationary kingdom. So the general, the general direction is forward, not staying. So, so be moving forward, right? Don't be stationary. But don't be trying to move forward quicker than God is moving forward. But be moving forward, Right? Okay, but let God allow the pace. Number four, it has grace. Wisdom is not burdensome. It, it is doable. God doesn't require things of you that are in, you're incapable of doing. Number five, wisdom is good by nature. It's objectively good. And I've shown you that. It's good for God. It's good for witness. It's good for others. It's good for you. That's the nature of wisdom. So here's the test. Take, take the thing. It's always good. Can you put the next slide? Uh, okay. Good luck trying to read that. I can read it. But um, the first question you ask, yeah, you can just put it through a matrix. Take the thing that you've thought in your head and ask this question. Does this decision, if I do it, does this honor God? If the answer is no, stop and don't do it. Move on. You, you're finished. That's it. If you're not sure, go ask someone. So the answer may be, yes, it does honor God, or I don't know yet. It's not that clear. Then move to the next question. Is this a good witness to our neighborhoods? And the, it's particularly here to your neighborhood. There are, the kingdom of God is going all over the world to everyone. And you can't be a non-offense to every single person the kingdom of God is going to. You, you won't, you, everyone in this room is offending someone around the world right now. Whether it's what you're wearing, whether it's what you're um, eating today, whether it's what time you arrived here, whether it's how you leave, whether it's what you drive, someone's offending someone. That's not the question. The question is, are you a good witness to your neighbors? As Abraham Cho said, God has called you to a particular sentness. Who has God sent you to, and is it good for them? Right? If the answer is no, then pause. 
it seems like this may be unwise to do. But maybe not. Don't, don't throw it out yet. If the answer is yes, move on to the next question. Is this an offense to others? If the answer is yes, pause. And here's where you really need to be careful, because the more you have a bunch of legalistic people around you, the more easily you can offend everyone around you. Right? So you need to identify, if the offense you're causing is because everyone around you is legalistic and doesn't understand the freedom of grace, God may call you to disrupt that community through a life of grace. Gently. Gently. Remember how I said Nast disrupted my un un grace in my life was through prayer, not pointing a finger? So I'm not saying you go run around calling every labeling everyone a legalist, therefore you should be uh, drinking alcohol, smoking tobacco, uh, whatever it is that causes all of them to freak out and be like, yeah, are you even a Christian? Gently, how may God call you to be disruptive for their good? Yeah. Right? Otherwise, no, it's not an offense to the people around me, or it's not clear yet. Then move on to the next question. Is this good for your life? If the answer is no, then pause. Because unless God is demanding it of you, you shouldn't proceed. Sometimes God will ask us particular to do particular things that may not be good for us. Martyrdom is not necessarily great for your health, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but if God has called you to be a martyr, Paul says, or the Scriptures say, that's a wonderful privilege. Don't go make yourself a martyr. The scriptures don't call us to make ourselves martyrs. It's just if that's what God has called you to, you'd have to go, it's not good for my life now, but it is good for my eternal life, so I'll go through with it. And I'm using a very extreme example, but there's many examples which you could add. It may be that you call to... I remember Tim Keller saying to a bunch of pastors, he said to us, um, I don't want you to overwork. I want you to have a better work ethic. Pastors are terrible at it. He said, I just want to say, I have a terrible work ethic. I, have, I worked way too hard when I planted Redeemer. He said that. And he said, honestly, if it wasn't for the mercy and grace of God, I should be dead. My children shouldn't have a father. My wife shouldn't have a husband. My, if I was alive, my marriage shouldn't exist. By God's grace and mercy, I'm here today. But don't need God's grace and mercy the way I did. In other words, like, uh, rather obey God's natural rhythms of life. And he said he went to his wife eventually when things were, were, were getting really rough, and he said, I need six more months like this. But if after six months I don't slow down, then we, we need to make a drastic change. It was a, a wise line in the sand. This is not good for your health. This is not good for the health of our marriage. This is not good for the health of our family. Okay. Well, it would be stupid to stop today, but let's put a line there, six months, and, and work towards it. And if things don't change by then, then, then things need to, we need to make some drastic changes. Right? If you can say yes to all of those, then you keep moving forward with open hands and open hearts at the pace that God's allowing, and you see what He's doing. And you can be assured, almost assured, that you have wisdom in your life. You want wisdom? You want God's wisdom? I want God's wisdom. Here's a way you could try. Again, the matrix is mine. You can chuck it, take it, leave it. But the model is in Scripture. 
humility, trusting others, being patient, going at the pace of God, being good. Are you honoring God? Is it good for your witness? Is it an offense to your community? Is it good for your life? Which one do you think our world starts with? Our society. NASA said it, but who else? Someone who's not my biggest fan. (laughs) Is it good for you? Is it good for you? Do what's right for you. That's not where you start. That's a terrible place to start. Start with, does it honor God? And go from there. Because anything that does honor God may very, very, very well be good for you. And anything that doesn't honor God, I promise you, will be terrible for you. So start with God and work your way to your life. Jesus, your life. Work your way to your life. That's good as well. (laughs) Jesus above all. Does this honor him? Others before me. You don't discount yourself. You still need to be involved. You're still a person full of dignity. You still have a life. Just don't put yourself above it all. Right? Let me pray.